That's right. That's right. That was the theme tune for the Shut Up and Sit Down <laughs> Isolation Cast number three. Uh, we are still in lockdown, but don't worry because we've got it locked down with some fascinating thoughts and conversations and things about games. Now, you know what? On the sorry, on the one hand, I feel that we are really hitting our groove. We're playing loads of stuff digitally. I'm getting into print and play stuff. On the other hand, I have just locked myself in my office. What? Uh, well, I mean, it happened about an hour ago while we were setting up to record the podcast. <laughs> but I, I closed the door because obviously, don't want. I oh, when your door handles in your flat, I'm insane. Yeah, and uh, I went to close the door, and then the door handle came off in my hand. <laughs> so, that, <laughs> so that brings an entirely new meaning. Oh, to, wow! Uh, Self isolation. <laughs> uh, but just, just you guys don't know about this, but just before we started recording, I was banging on the wall of my office trying to wake up my wife so she could let me out. <laughs> Oh, so, wow. And that this, but, yeah, this now brings some new context to me saying to you whilst I was trying to set up some of the audio stuff, Quince, just go take five, you know, just go, <laughs> just go grab a coffee or something. Uh, I hope you enjoy taking five um, just on the other side of the room, I guess, just turning uh, w- your chair around. Without wanting uh, to share too much information, I use those five minutes to determine what receptacles I could pee into should, uh, <laughs> should, well, that's, should things get worse. That's pragmatism. Hopefully by the end of this podcast, you will have devised MacGyver-style a way of escape. Uh, I'll tell you what else. By the end of this podcast, uh, the good people listening to this will have heard about uh, talking about Russian railroads, uh, an old management game about building railroads in Russia that we have returned to. I went to back. See- if we're correct or not. We're going to talk about Calico, a Kickstarter game that's going to be releasing later this year. We've played it early, digitally, and it's a game about building a cult and getting cats and having an aneurysm. Uh, we're going to talk about Pax Pamir's second edition, a game about being Afghani tribes in the 19th century that is uh, that Tom will describe as having rules spaghetti, which uh, is both tasty and apt. We're going to talk about our first foray into 18xx games, the enormous genre of trainee Geek games about trains. We played 1889 History of Shikoku Railways, and it was fascinating. And finally, we're going to be talking about Watergate, a game of Nixon trying not to get caught by a couple of sexy journalists. Mm -hmm. And without further ado, let's do the podcast. So, Russian Railroads is a little old game that has a very special place in my brain. Not necessarily my heart, but my brain. Because... (laughs) A long time ago, when I was uh, a three-foot-tall game reviewer, uh, stepping out gently into the world of heavy board games, Russian Railroads was the first slightly heavy Euro game that I'd ever played. And I played it on a baking hot day. We've mentioned this a couple of times on the podcast in the past. It was a heat wave. I'd never played a game like this before, and (laughs) it melted my brain because I was sitting there trying to work out the difference between pushing this railroad down a track or this railroad down a track. And I know that sounds like nonsense. You'd think you'd push trains down railway tracks, but Russian railroads is a game that doesn't entirely make that much sense. So it was interesting, but largely horrendous and it melted my brain. And I was like, this is, this is too much. It's just too much. And now it's been fascinating for me because I've been really getting into board game arena, as I've mentioned a couple of times um, over the past few months. And it's a very lo-fi online board game service that has no frills, no pizzazz, but it does run the games for you. It tells you when things aren't allowed. It only allows you to make decisions based on things you can currently do. It's very efficient in some ways in terms of just removing all of those parts of games that can sometimes be tricky. And obviously with Russian Railroads being on there, the main thing it removes is maths. You know, you just do things and then you just get points, which means you can work out exactly how many points a thing will get you, but you don't have to. Every round it just counts up for you and it means you can whiz through a game of Russian Railroads in, you know, an hour and a half rather than two and a half hours. I mean, maybe some people are a lot faster at this stuff than I am, but I find with decisions and thinking and all that, these things tend to rumble on. What fascinated me, though, was... Going back to this game after having played a lot of heavy games, heavier games than Russian Railroads, and I remembered it in my head as being this behemoth of fiddliness and maths and being like, oh gosh, this is just too much. And 
it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it so, was... do you before we descend into the the depths of it's fine? Uh, do you want to give a tiny explanation of how you play Russian Railroads? So, Russian Railroads is a game whereby you have these three different railroads that you're going to be trying to build. You've got the Trans-Siberian Express. Exciting. You've got another one. Exciting. Um, and then you've got a third one. Nice. I can't remember the places that the other ones go to, but that's the end of that 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 sentence. I've got a bunch <laughs> of Russian names coming in my head. I can't remember. Anyway, the way it works is that you're trying to build quality railroads to these different locations in Russia. And confusingly, everyone has their own player board, which is everyone's rail line. So you're all building rail lines to the same places of varying qualities, which are in its, in a way is kind of... No, I don't know. I, I, there's lots of ways I can kind of try and jam it into some sort of theming that makes sense. But really, it's just slightly odd in the fact that you're starting off with a very low quality of railroad and then you push that along the track. Now, if you play games like Eurogames where you're pushing cubes along tracks, this is that, but you're pushing a cool little oddly shaped cube that looks a bit like a, a girder along a track. And the, the way it works is you have a system whereby you start off with a black track and then you've got the silver track and then you've got the brown track and then you've got... And, and the white track is the best one. I can't remember. There's loads of different tracks, but the way it works is you can't get ahead of your worst track so you have to push use actions which will push the track down these little tracks this is very confusing <laughs> i hope it, it you push the girder down the track and then you can push down a better quality girder down the track and at the end of the game you get points depending on how far along your what the highest quality of your track you built is and how far along it is but then also when these certain different types of cubes we might as well call them past different benchmarks on the track you get different bonuses unlocked you might get new types of track that you can start pushing along or you might get more workers or you might get some money or you might get some cool bonuses that can make things do more things and along the way you've got workers railroad workers that you're going to be using to build tracks or to um to, to make some of the other little Eco economical boondoggles in the game spin along and you can hire engineers that will give you new things so you've got some worker placement stuff which is the games whereby everyone has a pool of their own little people and they can put them on different slots and there's some oh i want that one you want that one and it's it's very competitive in that front because of the fact that there are in the beginning of the game there are very little slots you can do to actually do anything so it really is a case of just grabbing the ability to say build a railroad um, and then everyone else is like ah I guess I'll either build a worse railroad or I won't build any railroads which in a game about railroads feels bad <laughs> um, but it's actually it's a delightful thing it's it's got a ton of little crunchy decisions in it because of the fact there's so much overlap there are many different ways it feels like a real sandpit of many different ways you can go off and score points and yeah I was I was pleasantly surprised to basically find that hey this is a moderately complicated euro game but actually it's not very complicated at all in this comparison is, to some of the stuff i've played in recent years it's like when you know you go back to your old school your old house but you've become taller and you're like well my school is tiny <laughs> uh this is what you're telling me you're yeah. saying that now you've mastered so many management games that you went back to russian railroads and it was a stupid game for children yeah, basically, it was a dumb game for kids. Uh, what a waste of time. I, I scored 380 points, Ooh, which I, oh, I think is good. That I, sounds like a lot. I know, mm. I smashed everyone else. I absolutely ruined them. It was great. But I you know, I, I came away from it with conflicted feelings. At first, it was quite nice. It was like, ha, this game that I thought was hellishly complicated on a hot day as somebody who didn't really know what they were doing. Now it's like, I read the rules. I learned the rules in about 15 minutes and thought, this is pretty simple, and then got into it and was just fine and it was a nice puzzle that was a bit more abstract than i would have liked didn't really feel like i was making train lines but hey what a lovely little puzzle what a great little game but then it kind of left me feeling like i felt conflicted because of the fact that i remember when back then we talked about russian railroads there were people who were big fans of euros people who are probably in the sort of position that i'm in now going it's not that complicated it's really good etc 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 and 
I kind of wasn't wrong back then is the thing. You know, it's, it's interesting. It's like there's nothing you can do to change your own perspective. You have the perspective you have. But it's quite interesting now that I've got to the point where I've played so many of these things that I look at something like this and go, yeah, this is pretty simple. When it isn't pretty simple. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's just a case of going, okay, I've, I've gotten in too deep now to be any good at recommending Euro games to people who do not play board games. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny, right? Because, I mean, what you're raising is such a good point. But what surprises me is not when this happens, not when you revisit an old game and your tastes have changed. And for me, my mea culpa is card games, where simple card games, which were heavily dr- luck-driven, in 2011, when Shut Up and Sit Down started, I hated those games. And now, obviously, you two know me, I love gambling games, and I love games where... There are like, you know, there's almost no game and just so much fuzzy luck. But for me, the reason I didn't like Russian Railroads back then, um, it's not because it was complicated. Back when we reviewed Russian Railroads in 2014 or whenever it was, I hated the theme. The thing with Russian Railroads is it's a sandbox, but it's it's essentially a sandbox of what kind of algebra do you want to do? Do you yeah. want, you know, whereas, you know, for me, A Feast for Odin or, you know, back then I would have liked uh, The Village or Villages, uh, Village, that's what it's called. I wanted Euro games where I could do my management, but sort of have a story in color. And that is so absent from Russian Railroads. No, you're right. You're right. And actually, I may be misremembering my own thoughts, my feelings about this, because <laughs> I do remember mostly struggling less with the complexity of the game and more the complexity of the maths towards the end yeah. of the game of being like, oh, I've got to add up all these different numbers now. And as I say, Board Game Arena is kind of wonderful for that and the fact that it just does it for you. Mm-hmm. So there's there's mm-hmm. none of that. It means it's slightly anticlimactic about who wins because it is just literally like, all right, yeah, like bang, you press a button. It's like, yeah, they won. They just got, <laughs> they just got so many points. Um, but yeah, no, it's a really enjoyable way of revisiting it. And I think, to be honest, it's interesting in the fact that if I'd revisited it on a table, I probably would have got to the end and gone, do I really have to do all of this adding up now? I'm sorry, guys, there's someone at the door. I'll be back in just one minute. That's fine. Who was at the door? Was it a package? It was, yeah. Package. Exciting. Exciting. Uh, <laughs> is this going in? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, let's move on to the next game, uh, which also topically is a bit of a brain burner. But you know how you said that in 2012, um, Russian Railroads burned your brain, but it doesn't anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom and I played a game that did destroy our brain. Oh, this is the cat one, right? Oh, God. <laughs> you hear that? You hear that, Matt? <laughs> Uh, there's a preamble to the cat to the cat game, aka Calico, which was kickstarted recently and should be shipping to backers maybe at the end of this year, but we'll see. Um, this is a pretty simple abstract that I would compare in weight to and time to Azul, um, where you know it's a it's a game with a couple of pages of rules. You get a lot of really pretty tiles. You're going to be laying those tiles out and trying to score points. Um, however, uh, I'll let Tom do the actual description of what the game is, but I will uh, just first say. I have never played a game before where when it was it was fun and we all enjoyed it. Well, yeah, I enjoyed it. And absolutely Chris enjoyed it. I don't. I don't know how much you enjoyed it, Tom. I definitely but, enjoyed it, but in, okay, a, in a very masochistic way. Yes. So what would happen is when it was our turn and we're playing this <laughs> on Tabletop Simulator, um, and of course, advantage of Tabletop Simulator, it turns out you can play games that are kickstarted long before they're shipped, which is fun. Um, but when it was our turn, we would go. Oh, no, it's not my turn, is it? <laughs> and then we would lay a tile. And all you do on your turn is lay a tile and take a new tile from the shop. And the it, the act of laying a tile was so difficult and so painful that when you did it, you would go, oh, no, because you had to draw a new tile. Um, so, Tom, do you want to try and explain the hell that is Calico? Sure. Basically... When you start the game, you've got this uh, a quilt in front of you, but the quilt is made up of empty spaces that you're going to fill with new patterns and colours in the hopes to attract cats to your quilt. And all of this like theming is really sweet and nice. You're looking at it, you're like, oh yeah, I, I can't wait to tempt... Is it Thurston was one of the cats? <laughs> there are, and, and there are 12 names of cats. Yeah. <laughs> and you're getting excited about the prospect of sticking buttons to your quilt and all that kind of thing. And then you realise that the game has so many different ways of scoring points because you're going to score points based on the patterns that you form on that quilt in front of you by placing those pattern tiles. 
Um, one of the ways you can score points uh, is by getting cats, which is having five. Uh, well, not five, but <laughs> so you, first have, like, you can get cats. <laughs> you can <laughs> obtain kittens. Yeah, so you can get cats. Cats have pan- patterns they like. Yes. Um, so every tile in the game is one of six colours and one of six patterns. And there is three of each instance of tile. So the stri- there's three stripy reds, for example. Mm. Uh, the cats like patterns. So Thurston, who's a big, luxurious, high point value cat, wants five of the same pattern in a line. He's a top of the line cat. He's he's a, he's a top uh, cat, a god tier cat. Yes, uh, but and we should stress we're putting hexagons down. You can also uh, every time you get three of the same color next to each other, you put down a button, uh, and then finally at the start of the game, you have three special randomized scoring tiles on your mat. Um, which will say like, oh God. So for example, a simple one is none of the same. So if you surround it with none of the same patterns, so all six different patterns in the game, that'll score. But also if you score it with six different colors, then it'll score. If you score it with six different colors that are also six different patterns, you get an even higher score. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can yeah. already see, cause I remember when we played, um, welcome to Las Vegas with Tom and, um, and, we had that that objective, which was, hey, try and, you know, get a, a road as far as you can along the way with just odd or even numbers. And we're like, oh, that's a nightmare. And then Tom just did it on every street. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, what? Um, I can imagine this game just breaking Tom. Well, the thing it's about, like, hey, here's a tough challenge. Like, it yeah. will kill you. Because the thing about Calico is at the start, it's a game about, about like opportunity and excitement. Because you're thinking, yeah. oh, if I put this here and if I put that there, then sure, I, I can do this. And the game is a slow kind of crunch into all your dreams being crushed by these needy cats. Like, it's the worst. Probably the, the best example of how the game like goes against your desire to create something that's like neat and beautiful <laughs> is having that... So when you were talking about those objective tiles, Quins, with the beginner board, right, the, the, the recommended starter board, it recommends you have the tile that's all different, one hex away from the tile that's like two of the same, two of the same, two of the same, like A, A, B, B, C, C. So like two of the same color, two of the same color, two of the same color, and then two of the same pattern, two of the same pattern, two of the same pattern. So the game is already saying like it's going to be really difficult to get those two cogs to align, right? One that's by necessity about getting different things together <laughs> and one that's by necessity about getting the same things together. Cogs is the perfect way to describe it because those scoring tiles are cogs in your in your quilt, right? Yeah. But that is completely different from the colours, which is different from the cats. I distinctly remember wanting Thurston so bad because <laughs> Thurston required five in a straight line. Yeah. But the, 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 the player boards are tiny. So in my decision to, in, to try and chase after Thurston... Thurston's five tiles ran through the middle of my board like a highway demolishing (laughs) all other possibilities of things I could score. Also, Matt, here's a super cool thing that I did really like. So, you know, in these games where you're putting tiles out, um, you're sort of filling in a a sort of blank space, right? What's cool about Calico is around the edges of your player board are like sort of where the hex grid would continue if you sort of imagined it... um, sort of if you imagined your player board was bigger and Mm -hmm. those spaces are filled in so at the start of the game you're looking at this rainbow of sort of printed tiles around the edge of your board and it looks like just an art asset to do something nice with the space but you can actually use those tiles Mm. so it's not even that like oh here's a you know blank canvas go make a mess it's like the puzzle is already hellish from the start because even the edges of your board, it's its almost like trying to fill in someone else's painting. The way that you get buttons, which is one of the ways you score points, you get three points for putting a button down by connecting three hexes of the same colour, right? Mm, um, yeah. And then if you do all six colours of hexes, you get a special rainbow button that's worth an extra three points. But <laughs> I was looking at the edge of the board and thinking that those would be the best places to do the, the three of a kind buttons because you've already got one of your three. You just put two more down. But then as you get like later into the game, you find that like when you're putting down a tile, you're going to have to cut off that opportunity. Like Every tile you place is like yes. cutting off a head of the hydra of joy and satisfaction. So this, this basically sounds like patchwork, but you're making a quilt for the devil. <laughs> uh, it's, it's more like if, if patchwork... I mean, they're both kind of similar in that they're both games about one of the most sort of benign and friendly pastimes <laughs> of all time. And But in actuality, they're like hellishly competitive things. Um, it was pointed out as well that while we're making Calico sound like this 
incredibly intense puzzle, which it is. The person at our table who crunched the hardest and thought the most and grokked the puzzle won. It is also kind of magnificently um, a gambling game. Um, This is something we all agreed on when we played it, Mm. and it really made me excited because... Uh, like with those, you know, whatever patterns you're trying to make, very routinely you'll get, you'll quickly say, okay, the first tile, I'm going to start building this. And then you pretty get a second tile, maybe a third. But when you need maybe tile four, five, or six of one of the really high point scoring things, you just don't know if it's going to come out of the shop. And in a two or three player game, it almost definitely won't. Right. So there's this unusual thing where if you're going for a, a Thurston, say, and you need, you know, a stripy line to go right here you're banking on just even being able to get a stripy line and you won't. So by the time you finish your quilt, like the last few turns are just failure after failure after failure as you oh. fail to complete the things you set out to do. That, that but, sounds kind of horrible. But it's happening to everyone. So imagine now, Matt, that you're failing okay. and going, ah, oh, and then you get to listen to the next player on the table going, ah, oh, and then the next player and then the next player. So actually it becomes this weirdly shared cathartic moment where everyone is failing, except for maybe one player who gets abominably lucky and starts screaming and you all hate him, but you also kind of like him because that's what you all wanted to happen to you. (laughs) That sounds a bit like Quacks then, really. Yeah, actually, Quacks is not a bad comparison. I've got to say, um, there was a a cat-based game mentioned by Ava in the news on shutupandsitdown.com this week. That It's a game that, it's a Kickstarter game that came out, and I think that um, by City of Kings, and it's called I Love Cats, it was a Kickstarter game, and um, I've got to say, like, I, I've not played it, but um, looking at the photographs of that game, as somebody who doesn't even really like cats, it looks wonderful. Just having, like, basically laying all of these tiles down of cats lazing around on a pirate ship boat whilst tetromino shapes of treasure. Are, just, just the idea of all of these colourful cats lazing around on a pirate ship with too much treasure just <laughs> makes me feel very warm inside. It's a very sweet like, theme. Yeah, it is. Well, I I don't know quite how it's managed to touch my heart because cats, <laughs> me and cats, don't care. Do not care. Um, just like they don't care about me. So at least we have that synergy. Maybe oh, I'm a cat. Matt, I'll, I'll, I love, I love, I love cats. I love cats. Yeah, that, I think that is actually a pun they were, they were reaching for oh, with the name. I love no. cats is, I love cats. Yeah, I like I that less. <laughs> <laughs> Turn the ship around. <laughs> Another game that I played recently, Matt and Quinn's, was Pax Premier Second Edition. Not the mm. first, but the second. I've never played the first. Quinn's, what do you think about the first edition of Pax Premier? It's real ugly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Pax Premier Second Edition is real pretty, I'm I'm told, but I didn't really get the full experience because I played it in Tabletop Simulator. And there's something uh-huh. bizarre about having a game that's been... Uh, lauded for having a lovely cloth map and being really beautiful and elegant uh, and then playing it as like a compressed JPEG uh, in Tabletop (laughs) Simulator. It was a similar experience, uh, we won't talk about it on this podcast perhaps, but when we played Tang Garden, um, which is obviously like a beautiful new Kickstarter game and then just having it as a load of still images was strange. Pax Premier is a game set in 19th century Afghanistan. Uh, you're playing as the uh, Afghans in the country who sought to manipulate the powers that were sort of playing out their own rivalries in Afghanistan. Um, so in the game, these are represented by Russia and England and also Afghanistan. Didn't quite get that, but it's fine. Um, but basically, you've all got your own personal faction, so your own player colour. And then on the board, there are these larger factions that you will swing to your side to gain their control of the map. So it's like an area control sort of game, but it's mixed with a tableau builder um, because the way that you influence those factions is by drafting these cards from a central market. And those cards, when you draft them to your um, tableau, will deepen your allegiance with said faction. So if I uh, get this English rifleman card and I put it in front of me, that means that I'm now deepening my allegiance to the English and therefore I've got a vested interest in them winning the conflict. And the other players around the table are going to have different allegiances to you, or they could all have the same allegiance to you. Um, One of the greatest things about that game is that right at the start, when you all choose your allegiance, uh, the first game we, well, the second game we played, I picked England. The player to my right looked at me and went, I'm going to team up with you and also picked England. And the next player went, you know what? Three's, Three's a good idea. And then they turned themselves to England. And the fourth player was like, yeah, okay, why not turn themselves to England? <laughs> and then the whole table was all the same faction from the start of the game. Like, it's great that it gives that possibility of, like, what looks like a kind of a war game, uh, a game with lots of direct conflict. Everyone just starts on the same team. 
<laughs> which was really strange. Does it? How, how does it then work with Winner? I'm trying to remember because I talked about Pax Premier First Edition and my not great experience with it on a podcast a while back. But it's like there can only be one winner because it's whoever supports, whoever's the best friend of England yes. if England then wins, right? So the way that scoring works in the game is uh, every so often a dominance card will get drawn from the from the deck and put in the market. And that dominance card, when it's played, is going to check for who has the most control of the board. So say the English have four more pieces than any other faction on the board, then the English control Afghanistan, which then means that whoever has... so, And then you look at all the players that... So England has won. Then you look at all the players who have English loyalty, and whoever is the most loyal to England will win that round and get the most number of points. The second person gets a little bit fewer points. The third person gets a few less points, and so on and so forth. Um, however... If Afghanistan isn't controlled by anyone, so if there's no majority faction, then wh- whichever player has the most of their pieces on the board gets a load of points instead. So everyone's got like different kind of objectives in this game. They can because if you're a player that looks like your sort of ally, so if you're the Russian, if you're allied with Russia and you're looking at the board and you're thinking, ah, it doesn't look like Russia are going to control anything, you may as well add a few more Russian pieces just to make it so that it's unbalanced and then try and win just by having the most of your pieces on the board. But what's great here is that loyalty isn't set in stone at any point. You can change your loyalty very easily, which means the game kind of, the board state is swinging like crazy between turns because people keep changing who they're allied with at like a moment's notice. Um, One of my favorite things is, you know how I said that the person with the most uh, loyalty with a faction gets the most points? There's this little sort of meta game within a faction. So if there are three English players, and you want to be, and you have the most loyalty, you never want to make your loyalty too different to the the second lowest player. You want that player to always be a little bit behind you, so you give them the faint taste of being able to have the most loyalty in that <laughs> faction, but not so much that they ever get it. Because <laughs> if you go, if you become too loyal to England, they'll be like, ah, oh, sod this, I'm going to join the Russians and try my luck over there or something, um, which is just great. Uh, so electric. I, I I mean, so much of it is great. I think Pax Premier might be certainly one of the games where, if you just look at all the mechanics and have them described to you, and you're an enormous dork like I am, <laughs> it just sounds so amazing. Yes. Um, I mean, the thing that I always bring up that I think is so neat in terms of, I guess, just the storytelling it does in my head um, is that the way espionage works is when you get spies. Um, you send the spies across cards in the tableau. So if I'm sat next to Tom and Tom has, you know, some cannoneers and then a bridge and I move my spy onto the cannoneer card and then onto his bridge, I have a spy like at that bridge and it just paints such an evocative picture in my head. Um, it's this just the pairing of, of mechanics and theme. It's like like so much impacts for me. It, just gorgeous. It's um. There's also a really fantastic mechanic with the spies where you can betray someone's piece. So if you have a spy on someone's uh, card, you can betray that card, which gets rid of your spy and then discards their card. So you like assassinate part of their tableau. Mm-hmm. But what's really fantastic is that some of those cards are prizes for different factions. So you can assassinate a card and then you take, you know, like that's like a, a prize for the Russians, for example. Which yeah. also, if you get a prize of a faction that isn't your own, you change to that faction's loyalty. So it makes these betrayals so dramatic because it's like, I'm going to betray this card. And goes, oh, and now I'm Russian. They're like, oh, no, <laughs> the whole game state changes. Um, I like being, and now I'm Russian. <laughs> Yeah, but it's so <laughs> shock and horror of someone potentially being Russian. Um, no, it's more the idea that, like, just out of nowhere, you're like, I'm actually changing, like, not just changing, just changing your nationality on <laughs> a whim, like that. At a moment's notice. Um, but I think that uh, you're right, Quinn, in, in saying that there's so much going on in the game and every rule is so exciting. Like, I was reading the rule book and getting those, like, tingles of, like, oh my goodness, like, this is going to play out in such an exciting way. And there's so much scope for um like these big plays and like huge moments because in our games everyone everyone's stars aligned in the right way and they got this like amazing turn where they did like a million actions the game limits you to two as a base but there are these rare moments when your cards will you'll get everything stacked in such a way that you can take multiple actions on one go and it feels so good because you get to change the whole state of the board but equally because of the density of the systems and because there's so many, it feels like a puzzle that's incredibly difficult to solve. 
and much like uh, Colwelly's other game, uh, Root, which I'm a big fan of, but it has that same feel of it being a game that produces more drama than maybe mechanical satisfaction at times. Yes, exactly. God, you you took the words right out of my mouth. Um, It's, yeah, the fact that this comes from Colwelly, designer of Root, makes so much sense because I actually do have similar problems with Pax Premier and Root. Of course, you're a big fan of Root, Tom, Mm. so I'm really thrilled that you're playing Pax Premier 2nd Edition. But for me, these games are so masterful in their promise, you know, in connecting themes and mechanics and and going, this is what you're going to do. It's why I was so amped to play Pax Premier and so excited to play Root. But then what rubs me the wrong way because of what I'm looking for in games is how um, the it's it's less about a game. If I was to be ultra uncharitable, what Cole Worley I think is really good at doing is producing these like almost like sort of Disneyland on rails rides where he goes, this is going to be amazing. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be magical. But you have to keep your arms within the vehicle. You have to play this exactly how I think you should play. And if you try, if you venture out, if you try experimenting, if you don't understand a rule, um, you're in because you know no one enjoys suff- being last in route and in Pax Mia, if you're just losing if you don't quite grasp it you're going to have an awful time <laughs> that's i mean it is like the game is just spinning like a load of plates all at once and i can absolutely tell that like not everyone's going to be like a huge fan of the kind of the style of game but i actually introduced it to a bunch of people that don't play that many games they're a lot of them play a lot of video games but not many board games and you know what people seem to get it almost completely by the second game (laughs) because there's so much going on in that first game that it is just like you kind of just have to go with the flow of what story is being told and almost not care about who wins Uh, i came dead last in that game as well uh maybe because i was bad at it but i like to think it's because i was struggling so much to teach it to everyone at the same time that i wasn't even thinking about my own turns that was that happened to me with Root. Yeah. I That was one of the reasons reviewing Root was super frustrating was because I had to spend so much, I talk about this in the review, so much of my time was spent looking at the other players, making sure they knew how to play, mm. they weren't doing anything stupid, so their experience would be okay. Yeah. My own experience was bad. There's a ton of uh, interlocking rules in Pax Mirror as well, where like, um, for example, so the board itself has these territories and you can rule a territory by having the, the highest number of tribes there. But what ruling a territory entails it like feeds into all the other systems in a way that like thematically and mechanically is very satisfying, but it's also like rules spaghetti because every time someone wants to do something, you're going, oh wait, because you own that region, I can tax you a coin and then you can only play this card to this region if you own it and blah, 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 blah. And it makes sense. Like it's as a simulation and as a sort of, and in terms of its ideas, it's incredibly intelligent, but it did feel a bit like when you were taking a move, there were a lot of, consequences that most people couldn't hold those consequences in their brain if that makes sense yeah like yeah i'll take this move and then you and then someone goes oh i own that region You're like, oh of course that means i need to pay this and then that makes this plan and blah 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 blah, blah. um yeah but it, i think i would still put myself on i there's so much drama in the game and so much excitement that i'd still pin myself as a fan i'm still desperate to play it again because much weirdly much like calico (laughs) there's a promise of mastery there like i don't think i'll ever like with calico right i'm never going to get a board that's like a beautiful pattern that like perfectly fulfills all the victory conditions it's just not going to happen the stars have to align in such a way that it won't be possible but i still enjoy the game and pax premier is a similar thing where i don't think i'll ever fully understand every system and understand the implications of each action i'm taking but that's kind of the point Maybe. Yeah, I've heard people describe PAX Renaissance, um, another game in the PAX sort of series that I don't believe is by Cole Worley, um, in a similar way where, you know, your first game is going to be a wash, your second game you'll start to grasp it, but it's for people who, you know, really want to pursue that mastery. But I guess just for me, you know, there are games where I I, I want to pursue that mastery and there are games that offer that, but along the way, I want to end a game feeling like everyone enjoyed that experience. I don't want to play a first game that's two or three hours long and be like, well, maybe the next game will be better. <laughs> Unless, like with War of the Ring, I end that first game being like, that sucks, but I'm desperate to go back in. And I guess that's what you're describing. Yeah, I, I don't think it's... Uh, everyone, including me, really enjoyed each game because I think we're invested in it being kind of a piece of theatre almost and like right. a kind of a game that's about negotiation and shifting alliances and betrayal and that kind of thing. And and almost just looking at the, the raw systems and just being excited by the possibilities that they contain. 
But equally, like, I understand that that perspective is so not for, like, a lot of people. <laughs> um, yeah, I think this is it. We're so used to in the board game scene talking about, like, what's your experience with weight of games? Do you like heavy games or light games? But I think Pax Premier and Root is a lot more like, how much do you care about story? How invested mm. are you in uh, using your imagination to make this game leap up off the table and become a, a sort of novel we're all writing? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Another big, exciting uh, monster piece of a game that we got to experience digitally, uh, Matt and I got to try 1889 History of Shikoku Railways. Now, that is going to sound like the most boring title <laughs> in the world. And in a way, that assumption is completely correct. However, what this game also represents is Matt and I sticking our toes into an enormous genre of board games that we've never touched before called 18xx games. So what these games are, are a series of train games um, which all have the naming convention 18-something. So 1823, 1846. There are so many of these games that they have the very real threat of running out of years to use <laughs> for, for publishing these railway games. Uh, what the games all have in common, though, is that you have a sort of hex map, I think, although some of them have you, you draw on the map with crayons. Uh, they're known as crayon railway They're my favourites. <laughs> yeah, I think they're also just as heavy and intimidating. The point is that players are all um, making railways across a bit of a, a map in history in the world, but you don't have your own railway company. Instead, just like City of the Big Shoulders, which we talked about on the last podcast, um, you buy sh stocks in companies, and whoever has the most stock in a company then takes that company, and then in addition to having your own money, and all players are trying to make the most money in 18xx games, I think, um, you have your own money, but also then the company's money. And so you're trying to, um, let's say, let's so at its simplest, in the game Matt and I played, A History of the Shik Shikoku Railways, we were building um, railways on an island in Japan. So the game starts with, of the 10 possible railway companies, um, of the four players, which we played with no pun included, also, I should say, huge thanks to Efka for setting this up and teaching it to us. It was fascinating. <laughs> um, so by the end of the first round, we'd all kind of bought a railway company, but also, like, I had a, a little investment in Matt's company. Matt had a little investment in Efka's company, which was smart, because Efka was better than us. <laughs> um, what then happens is you sort of lay track and buy trains and then run trains between different cities is you make money for that company, and then you have to make the decision of whether to pay out the dividends which means everyone who owns stock in that company makes money themselves. And also, because the company... I mean, we talk, I'm just repeating you from last uh, episode, Matt. Yeah. Also, the company... Based, I'll, I'll keep it simple. The company's stock value then goes up, which makes it tempting to sell your shares in that company. Um, alternatively, you can take the money the railway makes and put it into the company, at which point that company has more money to spend on things like trains and building railways over mountains. Yeah. Um, this, I mean, this was slightly... I feel like City of the Big Shoulders was a dip in the pond for what 18xx gets into. The fact that in City of the Big Shoulders, it was as simple as share price going up or down. In this game, we had this gigantic grid. It was like a periodic table of numbers and this big, strangely, it wasn't quite a grid. It was like a staircase at parts. Matt, and at are the you bottom, that the stock prices can go up and down or Left and right. Left and right. <laughs> yes. Yes, they can. Guys, my stocks are going left. It's time to sell. And like, if they want to go up at a certain point, then they're going to have to make sure that they, that they they can't go right and left to right all the time because they might get stuck on the stairs, just like the real stock market. <laughs> so we had a scenario whereby um, Efka, because he knew what he was doing, had managed to shift his stocks on the stock grid to the right uh, substantially. And what that meant was it meant that people selling their stocks in the company would usually, because basically the four things make them go either stocks go up, stocks go down, stocks go left, stocks go right. It's exactly like the real economic market. I got some, <laughs> I got some, fl I got some flack in the comments for the last podcast because people thought I was, I was described when I was describing the mechanics of City of the Big Shoulders that I was telling you exactly how the stock market worked. And that wasn't true. What? I <laughs> know. It was. But in this case, it is. This is exactly how real economics work. Can we wrap um, this podcast up? Because I need to sell a lot of stocks. <laughs> <laughs> so his stocks went right. And then it meant that when I was selling all of my stocks, it was good for me in one way because you can only sell one stock at a time, I think, unless you were doing that wrong. Um, it meant that I was. I, the price of the stocks weren't going down when I was selling them. 
But that was kind of great for Efka because it meant that otherwise, if people were selling all your stocks, then you might find if you hadn't managed to creep right along this grid far enough, then what might happen is you might start to slip down into the two zones on the chart that I referred to as the wee zone and the poo zone because they were yellow and then brown. Mm. And at that point, um, it was pretty bad. It, it was good in some regards because it meant that your stocks no longer counted as stocks in terms of the way the game counts it. There's like a limit of how many certificates you can have as a player at any one time. And it was like, hey, these stocks are now so bad, they don't count, um, <laughs> which was kind of sweet. But yeah, the, the manipulation of these things was far more complicated and far more nuanced than in City of the Big Shoulders. And the interactions between players and interactions between companies was was pretty intense. Yeah, so I think the probably the pivotal moment for me and the thing I would use to describe how 18xx games work is um, while I had an okay start, I'd so botched the laying of rail and connecting my, my personal railway to towns that I was losing the game. But Efka had some investment in my terrible rail company. Don't know what he was thinking. But then what happened in our game was halfway through, I thought, okay, hang on. I, what was it? I can't sell. I needed to drop below. This kind of summarizes 18xx because it's simultaneously interesting and weirdly mechanical and gamey. Like you would Mm. assume that these are like simulation games, but they're not. There's a lot of like really fuzzy game mechanics that you just have to learn and roll with. So I couldn't sell all of my shares because the open market could only have a maximum of 50% of one company in it at any time. And there was a share that someone had sold in there already. So I had to convince Matt to buy the share from the open market so I could sell a full 50% of my shares, (laughs) dump it all into the market, which meant I had 10% of Quentin's terrible railway, but Efka had 20% because we were going round the table. So Efka wouldn't have a time to act as Matt and I were manipulating the market, which meant because Efka owned more of the company than me, Quentin's terrible railway was then his. So I picked it up off the board and gave it to him. And like... I almost played an entire round of 18xx with no train company to to fuss with because it kind of just made the most sense looking at the stock market to be like, well, I could just sort of piggyback on other people's success. And Efka said that some people do win that way by never actually playing the game, but just kind of watching the game and buying shares and selling shares when it makes sense. That's crazy. Yeah, and I mean, it was it was mad in the fact that it was almost genius, if not for the fact that because you didn't have a second company to transfer the assets to at an incredibly low price. Oh, I missed this rule entirely. It gets super dodgy. It's like, yeah, you can sell stuff between your companies for like, you know, pretty much whatever price you want. (laughs) (laughs) And so it means that like, it meant that there was a single train that Efka got with that company, which ended up being tremendously... I mean, there was a fascinating moment. When we reviewed Brass Birmingham, I really liked the fact that in Brass Birmingham, the game is split into two segments. In fact, they have the first section, the canal phase, where everyone's giving it a go, everyone's making some money. But then you finish that round, all the canals disappear, as happened historically in England, (laughs) and had to be replaced with train lines. Um, Come to me for all of the geography, history, and economics (laughs) lessons that you possibly need. So in that, though, it felt... In Brass Birmingham, it felt kind of refreshing for me. It felt like a complicated game, but then, you know, maybe a third of the way through, you suddenly get this moment where it's like, okay, you kind of get it now. Even if you've had a bad start, now this is a soft reset. It's not really a reset because some people are going to be in a better position than others, but it gives everyone the sense of being like, right, this is an opportunity now for me to do better in the second half of the game. Whereas in this, it had a similar mechanic of trains degrading. But trains degraded in an incredibly binary way. They suddenly yes. went from being like, hey, you you have trains, to, hey, those trains are gone. And there was one round whereby two people in a row bought trains in a way that meant that we went through two phases in the game in, in before the... Basically, I had a go, and I looked at my trains, and I thought, you know what? I've got a three-value train and a couple of two-value trains. It's not great, but whatever. And then they went around the table and it was my go again. And by that point, uh, all of the two trains in the game and maybe the three trains had just degraded and gone. And you suddenly go from being like, I've got a semi-functional railway company here to being like, I have no trains. Like, (laughs) I have no money. Like, it's absolutely brutal. And trying to keep ahead of that curve is kind of almost impossible sometimes. You have to just have cash reserves available. To make sure that when somebody does something and suddenly all of your trains go in the bin, you're not 
completely shafted? Yeah, I mean, this is... I was just kind of startled because it is true that some 18xx games are just for people who really like trains, uh, to quote Isaac Childress when he did a blog post about going to HeavyCon and trying 18xx games. But a lot of them are just board games, but with a lot of moving parts. It's almost like... um, when you first get into board games, you look at GMT war games, which are big and heavy and complicated, and you go, I bet those are the most fun games of all. Turns out they're not. They're really for history simulation buffs, um, speaking generally. <laughs> and 18xx games is not that. 18xx are, are definitely games. It was amazing to watch Efka because we started the games with these little private companies, like you have a little mine railway and you have a ferry, which give you a little drip feed of income. But watching what Efka did to his company is he sold his tiny drip of income, which seemed really valuable to me, to his company. And because it was his company, he could set the price. So he scalped his own company to get com- to get money out of the company. Oh, office. I did that as well. And yeah, it's pocket, gotta, yeah. yeah it's, but it's like... It's, it's just not, embezzlement, man. It's, it's fine. Yeah, it, it is literally <laughs> criminal activity. Although, uh, or, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny, right? Because it's a closer approximation to how the business world really works than games that would set out to simulate a business because what happened to me is I destroyed my company through mismanagement, managed to manipulate the stocks so someone else now owned it, and then I just bought another company. (laughs) And it was fine. Yeah. that is what actual businessmen do. (laughs) Yeah, it's, I mean, it's almost like... the modern analogy, you should be able to like sell the word trains to your company for like a million pounds uh, and then just leave the country. That's, that's something that's going on with WeWork. Wasn't it the name We? Oh, there's used- a great podcast. Yeah. Um, I forget what it's called, but it's a six-part podcast series on WeWork and how it came about. Uh, just madness. Google WeWork podcast, they can have a really fun time listening to that. But I've never um, played a game like that where I, I looked at the board state and I was I was in a really quite good position. I had some really healthy rail networks and I had some some decent trains and I was bringing in a lot of money every round. And also, one of the things I really liked about this was the fact that the way you would, uh, one of the ways you would make your stock go up on the stock market as opposed to going right, um, which was still good, but not as good as up, um, is by having all of the shares in your company currently being sold, um, being, you know, being owned by people. And you can only own 60% of the company, which means, you know, you can go all in on your company and buy 60% of it. But then you really can't start to get those great share prices until other people get on it. And so it's quite satisfying. I think mine was one of the first companies to be completely, completely floated and completely sold to people. And I was really, I was quite proud because I looked at it. I was like, I've got a decent little machine here to the point where other people are looking at it and going, yeah, I'm going to buy that. Because there's no way you can convince people to buy 10% of your company, particularly not for the last 10%. They know is going to increase the stock prices unless other people have looked at what you're doing specifically and thought, yes, that's going to make me some money. And there's something about that that's really satisfying. Something about yeah. like, you know, a recognition that it's like, yeah, you, you know, you're doing something right. But then two turns later, I found myself suddenly very cash poor with no trains and having this. And I mean, that's the point where I realized that up until that point, I felt like this isn't really a game that simulates trains in any fashion, but it does kind of simulate railway systems. Well, yeah, it's, it's funny, right? Because I totally agree. It is satisfying and I had a lot of fun playing it. Um, I should also... I can't believe we haven't said this yet. Oh God, it was awful to play in tabletop simulator because the currency <laughs> manipulation was yeah. absolute hell. Yeah, like if drag- I remember, yeah. Anyway, it, but we don't need to get into that because ideally you'd be playing this game in person. Um, but yeah, yes, it kind of simulates a lot of stuff, but then equally there's this stupid mechanic where you're laying out these hexagon tiles to lay tracks, but it's like there's a limited number of each hexagon. So if I did a gentle <laughs> banking left turn, there can be no other left turns in all of Japan. <laughs> Until what? somebody builds over that one and then the banking left turn returns to the pool and people <laughs> rejoice. Finally, a soft left is available. <laughs> it's insane, right? So who would we say 1889 History of Shikoku Railways is for? Although this is kind of an uh, academic question because I believe it's been out of print for some time. Yeah, to the point where the only thing I would say is the Board Game Geek, not Board Game Geek, so the tabletop simulator version of it is kind of beautiful. It's been made by a fan um, and the artwork for it and the design is absolutely gorgeous. And it's such a shame that um, fiddling around with components in tabletop simulator is sometimes so awful that it just doesn't, it's just not joyful because it, it, I, I really enjoyed a lot about it. I was really into it. Um 
I'm just finding that whilst there's some some stuff within Tabletop Simulator, I think the only thing I really like about Tabletop Simulator at this point is it's it's malleable. The fact that you can spawn in objects, you can spawn in things, it kind of allows you to jury rig and MacGyver your own little creations to make games work better. And obviously yeah. you have got scripting as well, and some people have scripted stuff, and if you're able to do that, then you can you can script stuff. But it's not that doesn't feel in the spirit of board games, you know, to be like, I guess I'll just code some systems. It's it's interesting the fact that, you know, I found myself with these little stacks of poker chips for the money being like, yeah, but there must be a way for me to quickly say, like, I just want five of these to move here or here. And I, it's so hard to work out ways to do these things that actually what we ended up doing, <laughs> quite, I think this is quite fun, <laughs> is deleting all of the money from the game um, and then replacing them with um with calculators <laughs> so because we ha- the, the, the annoying thing about the game is because it's one of those games you have to know how much money is in the bank because when the money in the bank runs out that's when the game ends so we couldn't just keep track of our own uh, money which is a shame because i was realizing i've got some nice poker chips in the cupboard quinn's has as well i'm sure Efra and elaine have some around if you don't need to measure what's in the bank you can play games on tabletop simulator whilst using physically money in front of you at your computer. And yeah. I think that's a really neat solution. But, but instead... <laughs> instead, what we had to do here was we've spawned in about eight or nine calculators. There was or, one for each company, one for each player, one for the bank. Yeah, yeah, so you had to basically then keep track of digital numbers for money moving around. And then I had the bank on my physical desk. I had a little solar-powered calculator on my <laughs> desk, which just was always set to the number of what money was in the bank. And people would just say to me, take 160 out of the bank. And I'd be like, okay, one second. So that's uh, minus 160. Okay, equals fine. Yeah, fine. It's like add 200. Okay, fine, plus 200. And then not, but not only were we being like, okay, I'm going to build this $80 railway. So $80 goes into the bank and then I make 212 money, but 10 shares. So divide that by 10. How many shares are available times six? Not only were you having to do these calculations at your desk, you would then have to go to the pretend calculator in the game and update that as oh, well. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, it was it was basically being I was like being an accountant. Um but like a quite a basic accountant, I'm not gonna lie. But um it was still fun despite that. And it was still I mean this is the thing that's slightly maddening about a a program which is designed to simulate tabletop games is is when you find yourself being like, actually you know what, it makes more sense to spawn in uh, 12 fictional calculators and for me to go and get a calculator out of my drawer <laughs> it's like there is there is a fundamental failing there in terms of the systems at hand um, but yeah it's, it's, it's one of those things where I'm, I'm quietly hoping uh, you know it'd be, it, this is the sort of thing I would love to go back into again mainly because it was gorgeous I kind of feel like it's one of those things where it's out of print but like whoever can publish it just get in touch with whoever made this mod and just be like have some money can we use these assets because it's beautiful I think that next year we'll start getting like because this year we had Capstone Games publishing the little winsome railway games with um, mm. Irish Gage, and also this year we had City of the Big Shoulders taking some eighteen XX mechanics um, and putting them into a worker placement management game. I think we can't be too far away from a publisher finally taking an entry level eighteen XX game, streamlining the rules, making it gorgeous, and making that available to uh, everybody because you can. While our game wasn't perfect of 1889, I think Matt and I both completely now understand the appeal. Yeah. And honestly, I was really into it. Like, even bizarrely, calculators. I was I was into it. I would have been into it if I'd had actual physical poker chips to manipulate because yes. they're so much fun to touch. But doing it digitally, God no, never again. Yeah, no, fair enough. I don't think I don't think I could do it again, to be honest. It was just the point where I really liked the idea of coming back and finishing the game uh, with African Lane at the time. But then after we'd agreed that, yeah, we might come back and finish this, when Efka then had on his turn to, to, to manipulate the money for three different companies he owned yeah. with yeah. these tiny calculators. It's like, yeah, this is not this is not a thing. This, <laughs> this is really not a thing. This would be better if we just tabbed out of this and played the game in Excel. Another game uh, I've been playing recently is Watergate, which is a vicious two-player game about the Watergate scandal. And I want to talk about it because it is so vicious and so narrow that our game ended in this point where each one of us was just one turn away from winning for every single turn of the very last round. We were that close the whole way. So the game is a card-driven game where one of you plays the media, one of you plays as Nixon, and the board has this big uh, central mess of pictures and pins and string to show the 
the sort of scandal unfolding. Uh, and the media is trying to connect two of the figures on the outside of the board to Nixon using evidence tokens. So if they put an evidence token on each little node of this string network between the figure and Nixon, then they if they do that twice, then they win the game. And if Nixon survives his term as president, then he wins uh, the game. On each turn, you'll draw up a number of cards into your hand, and then on your turn, you will play those cards for one of their two effects. And the first one is to push and pull uh, evidence along this track that runs along the side of the board. Everything starts, so when you start a turn, you draw three face-down evidence tokens, and you have a momentum marker and an initiative marker. And using those cards, you can say, pull one piece of green evidence four spaces towards you. The evidence is coloured to fit the... There's like three different segments of the board. There's like the yellow, the green, and the blue section. So some uh, sections require you to only put green evidence or some only yellow evidence and so on and so forth. However, uh, so at, at the end of the round, if that evidence is on your side, so if it's on Nixon's side or the media's side, then Nixon or the media will then take that evidence and pin it to the board. Um, for the media, they're using that the coloured evidence to connect uh, journalists and whistleblowers to Nixon, whereas Nixon can flip it to the other side, it's black grayed outside, um, to block the path of evidence progressing across the board. Um, mm. There's a fun touch there when uh, Nixon has some uh, some X-ray vision because he can see, he can go and look at what kind of the evidence is before the journalist gets to look at it. So if the journalist will go, they'll play a, a card and they'll go, is there any green evidence? And Nixon will go, no. And then they'll just slide a random piece towards them. Um, but that's sort of the central thing is, is this this game where you're almost like a territory control game where you're connecting these nodes of evidence and trying to block routes and that kind of thing. Um, but first you need to actually socket the uh, whistleblowers themselves onto the board. And there's a really nice touch here where uh, the journalist has cards that say, bring that person on side, but Nixon has cards that will flip them to the other grayed outside to sort of like take care of them <laughs> um, and stop them from uh, coming to uh, coming forward with their information. Um, but also on the cards, they have these little things that have the the moving evidence forward and backwards, initiative forward and backwards, but they also have events on them. And the events will do like crazy stuff. They all have like these wild effects, but almost all of the event cards are one use only. They say, get rid of this card once you've used it. So the game is all about timing and it ebbs and flows in this way that's really exciting because at the start, you're holding onto the cards. You've been like, mm, this one might be useful later and you'll play it and you'll be like, okay, you know, that's like, I've played that card I won't use it for the effect. I'll just use it for the momentum or whatever. And then I'll play this card for that and blah, blah, blah. But then towards the end of the game, it builds to this conclusion where you're just burning through every single one in this last-ditch attempt to like drag yourself across the finish line. So in the last turn of the game, um, Nixon just wins by surviving, basically, by, by getting enough momentum behind his campaign. So he needs five of these tokens to win. So he needs to win five rounds, basically. And I was on four wins, and the person I was playing it with uh, was on uh they were just about to connect two of the figures and i managed the turn before to just block the only route and i was like this is i'm, I'm safe there's no way that she can connect one of these figures to me because i've completely blocked out the route and then she plays this event card from her hand which takes one of the previously blocked out figures and brings them back into the discussion. And I was like, oh my God. Because <laughs> I thought I was completely safe because I'd had that figure at the back of my mind the whole time. And suddenly they're stepping forward to testify with all this evidence. And I'm like, oh God. <laughs> and I'm trying to rapidly like plug up the holes in, in what I've um, like been le leaving open the whole game, assuming I was safe. Um but I just about this... managed to to bring it across the line, but it was so close towards the end. <laughs> Up until that point, I was like, uh, it doesn't sound that much like it's... Uh, and it's like, oh no, that sounds perfect. <laughs> I think I've been making the mistake of thinking that Watergate is more of like a card-driven war game, when actually it sounds like, I don't know, it sounds like a metaphor? Like, it also sounds awesome. When you're talking about blocking roots and trying to drag evidence to your side, that just sounds like a really fun abstract game mm -hmm. with a good theme. Yeah, absolutely. There's this like, I think it's, it's more because of some of the event cards have these wild themes, so wild effects. It's more thematic maybe than it is mechanical. I, again, going back to Pax Permit, I don't know whether it's a game that you could like master because of the the wildly differing effects and the unpredictability of it. But it does create this incredibly like tense story. Like both of us after playing it, we played it on Tabletop Simulator, but we're like that. Like I was like sweating at the end because <laughs> it's so <laughs> tense. 
Um, because every card that comes out of their hand is just this like thing that you have to go, oh God, now I've got to sort that out. And right at the one of the last rounds of the game, there was this one piece of green evidence. And uh, there were two figures poised to be able to use that green evidence to perfectly connect. And then uh, my partner, she would have won the game if she'd have socketed that piece of evidence in. So one of the rounds was just we didn't play any of the cards for their events. We were just playing them for the value just to pull that evidence like a tug of war. Like, no, I want it. No, I want it. No, I want it. And eventually it like came over to my side. She was like, no. <laughs> and there's also, there's cards where um, there's a really great card that Nixon has, which just removes evidence from the game. So one of the rounds we spent a while fighting over evidence and I was like, sod this. I'm deleting that piece of evidence. <laughs> I just played the card to boot it off the board. Um, it's a really like exciting tense card driven thing uh and it's very like it's so reactive as well there's like no downtime and uh you i was taught uh the game uh by chris in between uh our two games uh the other day quens when we played calico and tangarden so i was taught the whole game and played a couple of rounds of it in the time it took you to learn a game which is wild like it was so quick that the manual i was learning was only about four pages Mm -hmm. as well that's awesome it's it's a really great thing you know, it actually reminds me strongly, and I don't know if this is just a coincidence, but of um, a game Shut Up Is Down reviewed a long time ago, another Nixon tug of war, <laughs> which was, I believe, 1960, The Making of the President. Uh, I might be getting that year wrong. But uh, that's a game where one of you plays Nixon and the other plays Kennedy in an American election, where similarly, almost identically, in fact, God, what, what's happening with Richard Nixon? <laughs> um, players have hands of cards, which can be played just for like, to like put cubes, which are essentially, you know, things like media campaigns into different states to try and collect the um, electoral college votes. Mm. Or they can be played for their events, which are, again, one-shot things. Yeah. Um, so, and, and 1960, also beloved, it sounds like Watergate's better. But yeah, somehow the board game scene has created two... Richard Nixon powered tug of war two player games that use event cards. There's just I, something about him. <laughs> there's something about that beautiful man. What, what's going on? Um, but yeah, it's it's a. Uh, I think Watergate. I'm really like desperate to play it again. I think it's so good and it looks. You know, like you're saying that the the way the cards. It has that sort of look of a kind of card driven war game where it has like picture at the top, text at the bottom, use it for exactly, its effect, yeah. all that. But it, it's honestly so simple and so quick. We got through a game in, in like 25 minutes, but has this incredibly, gives you such a strong feeling of a story and such a, a great, it's got such a great wrapper of theme that, yeah, can't help but wow, it so much. That's absolutely great. I want to play it. I want to play it. Let's go right now. <laughs> I can't do oh it right God, now, can... but let's play it soon. <laughs> Maybe tomorrow. <laughs> That about wraps us up for this uh, this instalment, but we're going to talk quickly about a couple of videos that we have put on the YouTube channel, Shut Up and Sit Down. I released part one of a series looking at solo board games. I didn't think it would come to this. I honestly hoped it wouldn't, but I did. Now, what's interesting, uh, just to tease this part two, <clears throat> which is coming up uh, next week, uh, part one was me looking at solo games you can buy, um, games like Arion or the new adventure game series from Cosmos. Um, a lot of people really enjoyed that video. It was certainly really interesting for me. But part two, coming next week, we'll be looking at print and play solo games. And I was rambling in the Shut Up and Sit Down Slack last night. I have really surprised myself because I, did, after a part one where I was like a little cold on uh, solitaire games, I'm having the most amazing time printing games myself. It's like when you buy a solo game and you wait for it and it arrives, there's so much pressure for you to get hours of fun. But print and play games, it's like, you know, it's just an idea. You can print it off, try it. It's some crazy idea. It's awesome. And then you're done in 20 minutes and everyone has enjoyed that experience. You've enjoyed it. The designers enjoyed it. There's no stakes. And some of these games are ludicrously good. Uh, But that's all I'll say. I'm really looking forward to watching the video because yeah, I, I kind of don't want to know more. I just know that you've you've been blown away by these this idea of having ideas in your own head for fun, and, yeah, and being like these are really good. I I'm looking at the floor right now. There's a game called Supermarché about running a French supermarket. There is Bargain Basement Bathysphere about trying not to drown. There's uh, Mr. Cabbage Head's Garden, which is about trying to plant vegetables while annoying neighbors come to the house. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's honestly, it's a whole world of... Uh, and it's like, 
we're always complaining about themes in board games. Where are the great themes? Turns out lots of them are in print and play games. Interesting. Interesting. Cool. Well, I look forward to seeing that. And also on the website this week, things you can look at right flipping now. This week on Wednesday, we're very lucky to have Tom's very first solo video went up. He made a video about the quiet year and it's yeah. it's lovely. It's Woo. a very good video. Yeah. <laughs> you. Woo, you should check it out. He did a fantastic job and uh, it's got some lovely drawings of squids and wizards. Oh, and, yeah. Um, I really enjoyed <laughs> People like the squids it. and wizards. I did. People I did. Some nice comments about squids and wizards. Thank you. I got some good laughs reading the <laughs> text on the things and being like, ha, ha, that's a, a funny situation those the fictional characters have got themselves into. <laughs> Lots of sensible um, chuckles in there. <laughs> yeah. No, it's great. I enjoyed it. People should check that out. Also, we've been doing a lot more streaming. This week on Tuesday, I played Frosthaven with the game's designer, Isaac Childress, and we basically just tinkered around for a while. We're going to have that on YouTube soon, an edited-down version. And, yeah, we're also... Hang on, wait, you're leaving it on the table, Matt. Come on, we have an opportunity here. World-exclusive review of Frosthaven. Does it get the Shadow of the Down recommends uh, badge? Come on now. Played it. Tell me uh, now. Please. I played it for like two and a half hours and I don't, I wasn't really. As long as two and a half hours where you're fully equipped. Uh, it's, it's, I like it. There you go. Yeah, yeah, first. First exclusive review. I like it. It's quite similar, but I like it. No, I think I think it was diminishing returns now. I think keep it short. Uh, okay. Like it. Anyway, also we uh, have played some. We did some print and play stuff with the audience yesterday. The audience, who's that? I hear yourself thinking to yourself inside your own brain. Why that's you? And maybe you were there yesterday playing along with us on Twitch. If not, don't worry. We'll do it again in the future with some other games. Doing some print and play stuff yesterday. <laughs> I'm doing some strange stuff with past tense and future tense now because of how recording things works. But um, don't, yeah, don't let them know. They can't. Don't see. let them see behind the magic curtain. When you say print and play, do you mean roll and write? Both print and play and roll and write. What did you print? Well, I I haven't printed anything yet, but I'm going to print some stuff. I mean, Wait, no, we're going to print be... some stuff in the past. Oh, <laughs> flip. I mean, I did. I retrospectively, when we did the thing mm-hmm, yesterday, mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. did print out some stuff and maybe I used it. Some of it's going to be... This is like primer. <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't like it. I don't like it. It's too hard. Anyway, look, loop. <laughs> I'm just going to end this loop now and say, hey, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, now every week, we're going to be doing some streaming stuff. Sometimes we're going to be playing some games with designers. Sometimes we're going to be playing games with you guys. But yeah, do check that out if you're bored and uh, we will be putting the best bits of it on YouTube. But uh, yeah, you can go to Twitch and watch our stuff there. Or if you're not into watching stuff live, see you on YouTube later. But I get the impression lots of people kind of looking for something to do at the moment. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, come and join us on the internet and it's going to be a fun, all right time. That's twitch.com slash shut up and sit down. And yeah. of course, if you're not there for the live stream, you can just watch them as if you were there. Later. On the yeah. I didn't know Twitch did that because I'm old. <laughs> yeah, it's quite fun because you can see the comments appearing live as if you were there but no one will reply to you um but that's but you can add comments of your own yeah you can and then it means people might talk to you but only the people who are watching it at the same time as you this is like (laughs) it is honestly i don't understand how time works and i'd really rather not think about it thank you very much for listening to the podcast we'll see you again in two weeks goodbye bye